Hello, all you merry listeners. I just thought I'd pop on here to Happy Times and Places to wish you all a very happy Doctor Who 60th birthday. Can't believe it's been 60 years. Thank you so much for listening to Toby's fabulous podcast. And please continue listening for at least the next 60 years. But happy, happy birthday to us. Lots of love. Hello, Toby. Hello to the podcast. I don't want to pull rank, but I'm here in Chicago at a Doctor Who convention. And conveniently, I'm also here to say a very, very happy 60th birthday to Doctor Who. Who'd have thought it? And what a ride it's been, not just for the Doctor, but um, for me personally. What a fantastic time. Where would we be without him? So happy birthday, Doctor Who. Of course, thank you so much there to Sophie Aldred and to Lisa Bowerman completing my mission to get a companion from every classic doctor. Uh, well, so- Sophie did that, and then I thought, well, I can't I can't leave Lisa out as well uh, because um, uh, she, she is an important and a legitimate part of the Doctor Who universe, is Bernice Summerfield, and uh, so uh, it seemed natural that having got Sophie, uh, I, I top it off there with Lisa as well. So thank you to all the classic series companions, Peter Purvis, Annika Wills, Katie Manning, Louise Jameson, Nicola Bryant, Matthew Waterhouse, uh, Sophie Aldred and Lisa Bowerman there, who've given you birthday messages recorded exclusively for Happy Times and Places. I am so lucky that the Who family are kind enough to bestow their time and effort upon me with no reward other than the fact that um, they kind of did it. And it makes me feel sick to my stomach to ask for such favours. So I do hope you liked those messages. However, we have a job to do. We have to now reconvene post An Unearthly Child, which I have watched and commentated upon on a previous instalment of this. But I have yet to get through all the special guests who have recorded uh, contributions for me in which they tell me their favourite things about the episodes, just the first episode, An Unearthly Child. And I've got guests from across the Who spectrum and uh, hopefully they will be, because I haven't heard any of these, I will be responding to them live. They will be choosing lots of different things about those first 25 minutes that hopefully I won't run out of interesting things to say uh, about. You, it may be argued that I've already run out of interesting things to say, but I'm going to have a bash anyway. So uh, with an unearthly child, I hope, playing through your head, let's continue our post-mortem with some of the uh, best a forensic uh, 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 appreciators of Doctor Who who have also uh, had in hand in its creation in various different forms. Well, as you've probably gathered by now, this podcast <laughs> is several um, and I didn't record it all at the same time. I did start recording... Um, going into the 23rd of November I'm still recording uh, towards the end of the 23rd of November I've basically spent most of the 23rd of November putting this podcast together that I plan to have completed before the 23rd of November and just you know schedule to go out and leave it in the lap of the gods but of course uh, the best laid plans of Doctor Who episodes as we know (laughs) gang after glay and uh, so I've still got a large number of guests to give me their five 
favourite things about an unearthly child. Uh, if you've been listening to these in the correct order, you heard my commentary. I've actually since then, because it is the 23rd of November, and as is my want, I watched the first episode of uh, Doctor Who ever, An Unearthly Child, go out again. So I watched it to do the commentary, you, you know, less than 24 hours ago, or about 24 hours ago, whenever it was. Um, but then I watched it again today at 16 minutes past five as the first episode of this went on to iTunes and I'd just walked the dog. I'd been on a very Doctor Whoy dog walk with uh, 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 two friends of mine, one of whom restores the pictures for the Blu-rays and one of whom um, just produces and directs the animations of things like... Um, uh, the, the underwater menace and evil of the Daleks. So it was a, it was the three dog, it was the three dog walks. Ha ha ha! There was there was my dog, Peter's dog, and uh, Anne Marie's dog. I won't tell you which one was uh, just uh, done on film uh, at, at Ealing and slotted in later. Um, so uh, and, and got back and we got caught in the rain and then got caught in the traffic and got back with sort of. I think 12 minutes to spare to get that first episode into shape and get it out onto iTunes and then be ready to watch. Uh, an unearthly child again just for pleasure having watched it to commentate through i watched it for pleasure but with an eye on the fact that i would be talking about it which i seem to have spent quite a lot of time doing recently um so but i did notice i did notice things that i sort of didn't notice when i was talking all the way through it as you do of course you know the bits of dialogue and and, and little moments that uh, that are missed when one is you know performing and recalling and sort of trying to think of apposite or interesting or funny things to say so i mean it's the gift that keeps on giving i, I don't I can't, I can't speak for this podcast but the episode that this podcast is about but anyway on my quest i have been blessed with because you know I know I'm not a draw, but that uh, I, I, you know I get some very interesting guests, and I have more interesting guests to come. And you've had a few fans, historians, writers, a uh, comedian who does a Doctor Who show, uh, the, the, a sitcom writer who's had great success on television and had a couple of lines in an episode of Doctor Who as an actor. Um, some of the Doctor Who Renaissance people, uh, a great Doctor Who historian, one of the early fans, one of the newer fans, an international fan, and even as a couple of people who've worked on the televised show, uh, you know, the old, old televised show back in the day. But I think, should we move into more modern times? Well, actually, let's go, I think let's go first with someone who has a foot in both camps, not has not quite reached the current uh, uh, TV version of Doctor Who, New Who, as it is called, but has written lots of Doctor Who fiction, but is also a very, very gifted historian and has been writing something of great relevance to an unearthly child. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume that he will introduce himself and tell you why he is relevant and uh, hopefully tell us five very interesting things that he likes about an unearthly child. Hello, Toby. It's Simon Guerrier here. Uh, thank you for inviting me to be part of this. What a joy to watch this first episode of Doctor Who. What a masterpiece it is. It's uh, thrilling, atmospheric, compelling, strange, beautifully shot, beautifully framed. How in heaven am I going to choose five favourite things? OK, here goes. My first favourite thing about An Unearthly Child is the opening theme tune and title sequence, uh, which is 
absolutely perfect for grabbing the attention. It's so strange. It's so haunting. It's so unlike anything else. And then brilliantly, it bleeds into this rather spooky, foggy scene of a junkyard and a policeman and this um, uh, police box standing there making a strange noise. So it, the, the radiophonic uh, workshops work on the theme tune leads into a radiophonic uh, sound effect. Um, and I just I just love it. It's so str- it's so odd and immediately just grabs the attention without a word being spoken how clever well yes and isn't that some people have gone i mean i went the sound didn't i which sort of encapsulated the theme tune and i was going to do the tardis takeoff because that then encapsulates those those graphics and then actually i got uh, i got waylaid so i'm glad that simon has put them front and center as his first thing because they are magnificent i think I mean, I like all the first four title sequences, but I think I, I know there's a couple of different variations of the Pertwee one, but that's a bit like the Baker one, and uh, so, so, so yeah, um, so yeah, all all of the you know up up till the Starfield. I like the Starfield, but the Starfield to me is new. Uh, it's the new fangled title sequence. Um, I, I, I you know pre Starfield, I, I, you know I think all vie with me um, very very strongly, but I but I think for f- my favourite much as I love that that first Pertwee one, but I, I think battles between the classic Tom Baker time tunnel, which I think is a work of genius, and the Hartnell one, which is, you know, much simpler in a way, but I think is is so spooky and moody and evocative. And, and you know, it speaks of Doctor Who in the way that it was conceived and, and put together. And, you know, isn't it amazing that we have all those title sequence tests as well? It also it also feeds into the sort of history and the archaeology that we've had to do. And the fact that, you know, um, various people have claimed to have, 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 uh, have, have been there when that title sequence was being done. We actually got the name of the guy wrong. Everyone thinks it was Tony Halfpenny. Uh, Bernard Lodge said that I think uh, whose 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 face was uh, was was fed into the system. Actually, it turns out that it, it wasn't. Uh, uh, so you know the bits that we found out, we go, oh, there's a bit of history. We found out the guy's name, and then you go, actually, actually, that's that's not him. Uh, and and so then you get new layers and new bits of archaeology, and you must never take anything for granted because when I heard it was Tony Halfpenny, you go, oh yeah, okay then. And it's only when somebody goes, no, that doesn't look like him, and then oh, it's, I think it's this. Uh, and you go, oh. Um, so Jim Stevens, I think he was called. Anyway, again, this is something I've put in my podcast and then promptly forgotten. I have it all written down. So if I need to put it in anything, I can consult it, but it's not necessarily in my head. Jim, he's called Jim something. I'm going to say Jim Stevens, but it's not Tony Halfpenny, which, uh, you know, was a fact that we found out and took close to our hearts. And then it was, oh no, might not be. Uh, which means you always have to double check and you always have to keep looking. But anyway, that's an aside. But it is, you know, it is part of the mythology. And But amazing, again, that we have that stuff that we can find out and then refute and then dig deeper and find out new things. And we have not only the title sequence, but we've got the rejected bits as well. Um, and in fact, I've just watched An Adventure in Space and Time uh, because it's Doctor Who Day today and it was a brand new Daleks in colour made by a contributor uh, to this particular series of editions of Happy Times Places, Ben Cook. And um, and uh, the, the, the opening titles of Adventure in Space and Time use some of the rejected opening title sequence material from that session. So amazing that it, you know, it could still pass muster in a 21st century television programme 50 years after it was done in an experimental session that nobody thought 
they might ever remember being part of. And then loads of people like Woodstock claim to have been at. Yeah, that, that title sequence really is the Woodstock of, of Doctor Who. Uh, uh, and it was probably attended by uh, that stormtrooper who banged his head because I've met about seven people who've claimed to be him as well. Uh, right, second one of Simon Garrett. Simon, by the way, hasn't introduced what he does. I'm sure he needs no introduction. He's written some wonderful big finish work. Some of his companion, he did a comp- particular companion chronicle that I think is so special. Lots of uh, of great uh, novelizations as well. No- well, novels, no- novels of uh, original Doctor Who novels for the BBC, and and uh, uh, and he's also um, uh, just released a book about David Whittaker, the script editor of An Unearthly Child, and I think a major a major part of its success and the success of a lot of the, the script elements uh, and shaping of the show of early Doctor Who and could easily been, have been one of my five favourite things about uh, An, An Unearthly Child and indeed was one of Jeremy Bentham's in an earlier episode. hope that's not a spoiler. I hope you're listening to these episodes in order. Um, but uh, Simon's book on David Whittaker is a fastidious piece of work and has just come out and definitely get it for your christmas stocking it's published by 10 acre films now i've said that he's going to say that at the end i bet you then uh, my next my second favorite thing about unearthly child is um how brilliantly it grounds the reality of the london setting um i remember when i interviewed the designer michael pickwode for doctor who magazine he said that the um what he felt he brought to doctor who in 2010 was that the the sci-fi bits had been done uh, to look very very spectacular, but he could bring a bit of the contemporary reality and make and make the the uh, ground the reality so that um, everything became more convincing. Um, I think a good example of this is the the moment at which uh, Ian drops his torch in the junkyard at Tottis Lane, and we see the cobble floor of the. Um, of the junkyard very briefly uh, it may just be a pattern painted on the floor but it's a level of detail that really grounds that, that really sells the space we're in the dirtiness of it the uneven texture of it there's that ladder that goes at the steps that go up the in goes up a few bits that just set, suggests a sort of three-dimensional space i think his uh, laboratory in the school is full of props and so feels like a real workable space um you know, there's stuff written on the blackboard, all of those kind of things that suggests life outside the screen and, and that this is a real space. Um, I just found absolutely uh, uh, brilliant in, in, in selling the, um, the story and the setting and the reality of it, which makes my third favourite thing really work. Uh, well, uh, he, he, I don't want to hear your third favourite thing yet, Simon. So we may hear that uh, bit of your dialogue twice. Because uh, I don't think there's a very good edit point there. Um, who knows what magic I will have to weave uh, as, as I put this podcast together uh, through increasingly sleepy eyes. Now, listen, um, there is something I think I think it's one of the grimiest episodes of Doctor. Who. In fact, the whole four part. I love it at the end of um, the Firemaker when they've you know done the chase through the jungle and 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 all those and they, they took their publicity photos then didn't they? And it's like here are the stars of your show, knackered, sweaty, and covered in grime and. Uh, uh, and, and and I don't think they ever get quite as grimy ever again. There's a there's a real sort of attention to the, the you know the the physical reality of time travel and the and the and the uh, you know the 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 touch 
touch and the feel and the smell of everything seems so much more palpable in these first four episodes. It gets a bit, you know, it gets a bit sort of cleaner, a bit more sterile, a bit more TV studio from 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 here on in. I think uh, there are instances, but but I, 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 I and 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 I think Simon describes something that, that's true. Uh, you know, even of this first episode, is you can kind of feel it and you know the must and the smell and 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 there's a there's a there's a there's a it's and it's something to do with the print that we've got, where the contrast, the inky blacks, are inkier than than in some of the sort of more grayscale later episodes. And I don't know if that's because of the lighting or what Warris Hussein is trying to achieve, or whether that's just an accident of the the print that we've got. But I always think of these as being rather more black and white, uh, and that adds to what Simon's sort of talking about. And yes, he's right about those cobbles and and the fact that it's a junkyard and 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 you know the fact that a lot of those props would have been pretty musty and cobwebby you know if somebody had slapped some of them a load of load of dust would have flown out uh but yeah nice um not not and also nicer than than the cut is going to be between between your bits two and three simon um it was a very clever segue but um I, i don't i don't need a clever segue i need a clean edit point so when it's the 70th anniversary bear that in mind my third favorite thing about this is um that extraordinary transition um as barbara steps through the tardis doors into the bright uh, spaceship it's such a great shock it comes almost exactly halfway through the episode so it's a it's like an act change you could almost imagine an advert break here um and i wonder if that was the intention um even now, even though we know the history of Doctor Who, even though, though we know what's involved, it's still a shock. Um, and it's such a great gag, such a great gag, that there's this huge futuristic space inside this incongruous box in a junkyard. Um, it is, and we take it for granted these days, of course, because all of us, apart from the very lucky, um, well, but, you know, not lucky in, in, in some ways, um, uh, come to Doctor Who knowing that the TARDIS is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. I certainly, you know, knew the TARDIS was bigger on the inside than it was on the outside. That was never a moment of great revelation to me. It was just something I sort of took for granted. Imagine being there for that first moment when they've got inside a box and suddenly, and the fact that it's so stark and white as well, and the fact that it's not the size that it is in later stories, that it is a massive set as well. And it's big and it's bright compared to all the inky darkness of the night and the junkyard. Uh, you know, it is it is all about contrast there. And that, and that set that they've spent all that money on that set, which has to be completely different from everything else in the episode. And so it is, you know, particularly its immediate surroundings, the junkyard, which is old and knackered and fusty and cobwebby and dark and broken. Uh, it, it turns out the TARDIS itself is broken and is a bit knackered and cobwebby itself, but it's a different kind. It's space cobwebby. Um, you know, it's gleaming, it's white, it's bright, it's got that space noise. Uh, and it is. It's a huge contrast. And how amazing that must have been. And what a stark cut it is, because it is a cut as well, because the, we know that they, you know, there's a recording break there. Um, and in fact, we can see it in action in the, in the pilot and get the two, the two goes at the second half. Um, and and so we've sort of got that moment, that transitional moment. You know, we've almost got the sort of behind the scenes of it, and the and the two aborted attempts at that that scene in the pilot. And I know there are some people, and I've had a little bit of feedback uh, because obviously this the the the, the, the earlier instalment of this has been out as I'm recording this. That you know there are people who prefer the sort of darker 
um, slightly more abstract elements in the uh, in the pilot. Um, and I, I can understand that, but I think that's a luxury that we have. I think I, I, I still think we would probably prefer if we had no knowledge of the pilot. I think we would be perfectly happy with what we've got and still think it ideal. Uh, you know, it's, it's it, when you're given an alternative to what you've what you've had, it always might appear a bit more attractive because it is, um, you know, a contrast to what you know and love. But I think I think pretty much that all the decisions they make are the correct ones. Um, and and yeah, that but that that change from the outside to the inside. You know, w w nobody of of my generation will will really have got to have that heart in the mouth moment um and of course that was one of the things that i think they probably worked hard to get to get completely right on on rose and i wonder if they've worked on doing it for the new generation they're anticipating tuning in for the first time when doctor who relaunches as it is about to do um or two relaunches it's getting it's getting the david tennant specials which are sort of you know reminders in a way and then you know there will be a there will be a relaunch for for the new doctor and uh, i'm sure they've got the the new audience in mind and they've got a great thing to gobsmack them with and that's the inside that funny rackety box there's a massive gleaming spaceship cooer my fourth favorite thing is uh a bit more uh, esoteric, I think. It's the line the Doctor says as he sets the controls for the TARDIS and, and Susan tries to stop him. He says, get back to the ship, hold it. It's a really odd thing for him to say because they're already inside the spaceship. And it only occurred to me uh, recently, and I put it in my Edge of Destruction book for the Black Archive, um, that there's something going on here. And there are some behind-the-scenes photos from the set of Doctor Who where William Hartnell and Carol Ann Ford are stood with their backs to the console, holding on to it. And as I say in my book, I think there was a plan originally for the TARDIS to have launch positions that you needed to be stood at the console holding on, or, as what happens with Barbara and Ian in this first episode, um, you lose consciousness. And I think that's what's going on. There's there's some kind of uh, uh, launch positions like you get on a real space rocket. And although this is is lost uh, later on, uh, it's too much of a, a kind of complication for, for the storytelling. Um, what I really like about that is not so much the idea, but that I've seen this episode hundreds of times i don't know you know over and over again and i've never spotted that before and i've never made that connection before so i'm choosing this because there's always something new there's always something new to be seen um and that's what delights me about doctor who just as a whole yeah me too and uh that yeah that's a very good postulation because it's they, they, you know they do deliberately hold it and they have their back to the scanner which makes for the sort of beautiful shot where the camera can go through them and they're standing you know flanking it in a way um but yeah they have assumed the position and that makes absolute sense and it makes sense of the fact that you know ne you know um 
the TARDIS knocks the other t- the other two unconscious, which seems like a design flaw. That makes absolute sense. But yes, I I also love the greater point of you can you can be watching an episode you've seen a gazillion times before and find and see something new, and it opens up all sorts of possibilities. And then we might find a scrap of paper that backs up what uh, Simon has said, or 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 there might be a bit in a rehearsal script somewhere else that refers back to it or something. Uh, and and the always new bits and bobs to find out um and yeah and i i totally buy that i think that's a good theory simon's final thing i was torn about what my fifth favorite thing is um i think william hartnell's twinkly performance is amazing it's such an improvement on how he's written and and therefore played in the pilot episode i think that's a a marked uh, uh benefit for this broadcast version um and I, I also note watching it again for you all, uh, uh, for for this, that Hartnell's really good on his marks. He's always in the right position for the camera. He's always in the right um, position for the close-ups. He's playing to the camera extremely well. There's even a, a sequence in the junkyard where he seems to look at the camera directly at us as if he's joking with us uh, and we're sharing in the mischief, which is just such a brilliant performance. But much as i'd like to choose that much as there are a whole load of other things i'd love to say the 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 regulars are brilliant they're brilliantly written we get a real sense of their different characters um we get a real sense of the the emotional conflict the tone of this episode is amazing norman k's music is brilliant it's all just great but my fifth favorite thing is the final shot of the tardis slightly askew on what is in effect an alien landscape a landscape from prehistory uh, as the shadow uh, falls upon it of a, of a caveman now i remember that vividly from the first time i saw this episode when i was five years old and it was shown in 1981 as part of the five faces of doctor who in fact i didn't see the episode again until 1991 when the pilot was shown uh, in the summer of 1991 um, and I remember watching that pilot amazed by how, I, I didn't re- quite realize that it was a, a slightly different version. But I, I remember being amazed by how vividly I remembered this episode that I'd seen when I was five, you know, le- m- more than half my life before. Um, and um, and then uh, I got it on video. And as I watched it on video, my dad, uh, my late dad, who had watched it when it first went out, he had the same kind of reaction of going, I remember this really well um, and really vividly. The only thing that he was surprised by was that he had forgotten it had been in black and white. But this episode is full of indelible images, that, that weird, the weird incongruity of the TARDIS, the weird incongruity of the spaceship inside the TARDIS and this, uh, the, all the kind of close-ups and, and uh, the, the sort of extreme reactions of everybody in it. It's a really compelling bit of drama and it's really vivid and exciting and kind of imprints itself on your memory um and what a thing what a way to start and um how grateful we should all be um so yeah those are my favorite things and um as i say i'm really grateful that you got me to watch it um happy birthday doctor who oh thanks simon he's one of the nicest people you know simon uh and uh I mean, that shouldn't influence you to buy his book because he's also 
fantastic writer and a brilliant fastidious uh, researcher but he's also he's a lovely big teddy bear of a man and uh, he left me a book that he'd written uh, backstage at um, or gave me it at uh, at one of my touring must say my doctor who scarfs that was the first time that i met him yeah, he left me his book the pirate loop uh and um we've been friends ever since and it's always a delight to see him and um yeah his his book on david whittaker is well worth it if you are a student of the early show thanks for that simon um some some great observations there and i'm i'm i think that final shot is edging ahead isn't it as uh as the thing that most people are choosing three guitars mood two is doing quite well so are the school children think that think they might all be doing better than william hartnell <laughs> but that's because i think people are trying to think outside the box as well and not go for the thing that everybody else is going for which weirdly then means that perhaps nobody will choose the, the obvious things haha <laughs> um anyway let's move on to another guest right well we are going to go on to the new series of Doctor Who, because I'm not all old school, you know. But we still have, we still have one more link with Classic Who. So our next guest, uh, who got this in just at the last minute, um, but uh, he's important, he's an important part of these podcasts, because he has actually provided a theme for one of the strands of Toby Haydock's time travels. So let's get our last representative uh, giving their favourite things of an unearthly child of from of classic who, and I'm hoping he will give you all the relevant information. Hi, I'm Dominic Glynn, and I was a composer on Doctor Who in the late '80s with um, Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy, and um, here I am with my five favourite things about. An Unearthly Child, episode one. So, number one, I have to go for the theme music. Um, heard for the very first time almost in its entirety in this episode, I really can't imagine how an audience would have felt hearing this otherworldly, mysterious, uh, alien piece of music that gen genuinely sounds like nothing had ever heard, anyone had ever heard before. Uh, I was lucky enough to get the chance to rearrange the theme 23 years later but I was fully aware that nobody would ever be able to repeat the innovation uh, that this music represented. Created without synthesizers, um, just using oscillators, loops of tape and incredible ingenuity, uh, Delia Derbyshire and Dick Mills managed to, uh, quite ironically really, create music that was timeless. Uh, very weird and yet totally accessible. Um well, I'm glad. To, I mean, I should have expected Dominic to choose the theme. Uh, he's done his own uh, version of it for the Trial of a Time Lord season, which I remember being thrilled because I noticed. I went, oh, that's that's new. And I loved that. And I bought the single. I bought the 12-inch, actually. Um, but he also has now done some really sexy uh, remixes of that and reversions of that, uh, which I have just recently bought from the, the internet. And um, I'm sure sure you know how to buy things but and where to find them better than me just going i i went to that place uh called the cyberspace that you kids hang about in and i managed to bag myself some bargains um but anyway and i'm sure dominic will 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 plug but i i really like his uh his gallifrey remixes uh and i like his theme very much um and i like his theme for indefinable magic which he composed uh for me for you know very kindly um offered his services which is really nice um 
I like the way he describes how how it you know how it was done musically and because he knows the sort of technical side of things and it's worth pointing out of course that uh, that theme which I have to say I'm not sure has been better I mean I love as I say I love the same with the title sequences I love the theme arrangements for the I know it changes slightly when Troughton comes it's got a bit more ooble woobles uh, that's uh, that's what the music people told me to go no I just made it up um but I, I do love that originating, original one. I find it so haunting. And I find it, it, it you know, it, it suits the title sequence so well as well. But also, I, I did, was it cut to picture? I don't know that it was. You know, now, now these days you can cut music to picture really, really well. In fact, I remember when I did, I went in to do some um, ADR on an episode of Holby City I was in. And uh, and uh, they'd had to change the storyline quite hugely because um there'd been a mistake and they only realized when they edited it together which meant uh, i had to lose a couple of scenes unfortunately and my storyline had to be wrapped up in adr and i was like i said to the sound guy i said that's a bit of a shame that's a bit of a disaster he said oh that's nothing you know we've got a new exec and she's she's uh she's uh uh commissioned a theme tune but she sent the composer the wrong title so that they actually he, you know he fitted the theme tune to cut pictures that that that, that the theme tune his composition his composition didn't end up going on um because obviously you can you know you can do this stuff you know to, to the to the millisecond which uh which you certainly couldn't then um but it and i and i was going to say when dominic was saying how i envied so the people who got to see it for the first time imagine being there for the first time hearing that theme and going what is that and now i envy them in some senses i I don't envy them in the sense that if i i'd been there at the time i'd now be even older than i am now and i feel ancient <laughs> and i'd probably have forgotten all sorts of other things um but um i do remember when i first saw it even though i'd seen you know the tom baker titles by this point and watched a lot of doctor who when this was part of the five faces of doctor who i do remember it feeling like hallowed ground that i was being sort of sucked into when the hartnell titles and music started and it did feel very special and very haunting even then um even though and it seemed ancient then it was only as long ago then as as it's the equivalent of watching rose now pretty much isn't it yeah it is yeah because it was 18 it's the equivalent of watching rose <laughs> now and yet when i watched an unearthly child it was ancient it was before living memory it was fusty it, they may as well have got it from a crypt and of course you know william hart at that point was the dead one there was one dead doctor who uh, and it was it was William Hartnell, you know. Uh, so you know, it seemed like it was from another time. Well, I was a grown up when Rose was on. <laughs> oh, the humanity! But I kind of love that. But it's also a bit frightening because Doctor Who travels through time, forwards, backwards, sideways. We we only head in one direction, and uh, and and I find that the further you go in one direction, the farther the faster you travel. Uh, so there's a cheery thought. But anyway, um, of course, Dominic was going to choose the theme. I bloody love the theme. Uh, and I was also actually because because something I was thinking about when I when I rewatched it, you know, just for fun, just for pleasure, without talking through it. I, I seem to recall I, I, I'd been quite rude about. Um, uh, about the the live switch and saying that I didn't think that sound worked as well as good. Well, of course, having said that. 
I then looked at it uh, this time and looked out for it and went, yeah, because I, I, I'm glad I picked up on that. So actually, that sound is not bad. I, 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 I seem to think in my head, in my memory of it, it's, it's, it doesn't feel quite there and it doesn't sound like, it doesn't really sound like an electric shock, but it was much better than I thought. And also, of course, it's played in live and it's pretty much bang on, you know, it's, it's bang on when it should be played in and it cuts out quicker than I'd imagined. And it is actually more organic than I thought it was. But for some reason, I've always thought of that as a bit that was never quite right. And then, of course, as soon as I watch it this time around, having said that, having finally said that out loud, you go, oh, actually, no, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it at all. Um, yeah. Uh, but the thing that did actually strike me as maybe be slightly wrong, after the brilliance of Barbara walking in, you then get Ian walking and, and, and the acting choice that William Russell makes is to sort of look behind him as if to say to Doctor Who, look, I'm a bit cross with you still, you know, have you pushed me in here or have I pushed past you? I'm still a bit cross with you. But he's already in, so he will have noticed the big spaceship thing. But but he's decided to go, no, I'm still going to play this as though I'm annoyed with, with Doctor Who, even though I'm now in a massive spaceship. And then I shall notice the massive spaceship. But he needs to get that sort of reprimanding look behind him in first uh which I, I do think is quite amusing it doesn't quite work i mean it's tiny and it doesn't doesn't matter at all but what i also but to re reset that karmic balance is that watching that first scene between ian, Bar ian and barbara they are so likable and they are so good and they are so perky she is so empathic um and he is so he's got so many wonderful lines as well when he's in the junkyard and he says oh it was just before they enter and she's going oh i'm full of foreboding you know he goes i just take things as they come and i was it's worth keep saying this the ian in coburn scripts is an is a dick uh, he's, he's like, oh, God, women blooming drivers. And uh, oh, I should smack you on the nose, Dr. Space. You know, I mean, he's he's a real he's really unpleasant and sort of his wisecrack. He always sort of has an edge to it or sort of macho belligerence. That's really horrible. And thank God we have William Russell being, uh, you know, so, so perky and so likable and so. I mean, he is slightly paternalistic, but only, but in a in a really enjoyable. There's a real warmth to him, and I, I yeah, and I, and and and, and it reminded me because there was still there's so many bits of Hartnell that I was noticing and going, oh yeah, I still feel bad for not choosing Hartnell, but choosing the quartet. But then looking at William Russell without the the need to be talking all the way through it, you're going, no, no, I was right to choose the quartet because they because it 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 really does require all four of them to be firing on all cylinders and they really all absolutely are um that was nothing to do with what dominic said but it's just st st jumped into my head having he'll, he'll probably now say and the thing i really like uh william russell's warmth let's see what he says now what's dominic glynn's number two number two the nostalgia Although I was actually too young to have seen this episode, I was alive, but more than likely on the potty or strapped to my high chair drooling baby food. But it's very much representative of my memories of how I felt my 1960s childhood seemed to be. Um, everything was in black and white. Um, <clears throat> the 60s were in black and white, as you probably know. Um, Saturday nights, which for me were Doctor Who, Dixon and Doc Green, the Telegoons, toasting crumpets on an open fire, uh, it was always cold, it was always dark, uh, or so it seemed. Um, this is what TV was like to me as a small boy. 405 lines in 4-3 ratio. Um, 
coppers in helmets, um, pop music on tinny transistor radios. It's just so 60s. Uh, now, I obviously come from a slightly different angle because I wasn't uh, alive during the 1960s, but um, I, I absolutely agree with the sentiment uh, and and can and can see that through my own lens in the sense that unlike going, you know, I was I was sort of there, it makes me nostalgic for it. I'm nostalgic for the sort of memory of it. I was born in 74, but, you know, so the 60s were far away, but they seemed, you know, they were a time that we looked back on and they seemed like such an exciting time. And obviously my parents were, were relatively young in the 60s. What My mum was born in 43, so, yeah, my mum was 20 when, when Doctor Who went out. Uh, and... It, you know, it seemed like such a time of change and interest and, and actually anything but black and white. But um, but I like the fact that the telly is in black and white because it, it gives us that slight distance from it. And I don't mind that. I totally get uh, one of the guests of this podcast, Ben Cook, has just done a brilliant job recolorizing uh, the Daleks and, and reinventing that and, and, and cutting it and making it you know giving giving a gateway to young viewers into it i have no objection to that at all uh, i actually thought it was it was it was really nicely done and in places certainly the jumping of the ravine and the final scene with lasers flying about i thought were actually much better and much you know because i think that 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 final episode of the daleks climax isn't brilliantly directed in the original and they tightened it up and really made it work and and the other thing is even if it had been it wouldn't matter because we still have those seven episodes and nobody's saying that those seven episodes are bad or there's anything wrong with them and i love watching them black and I like the longer pace. I like spending more time with the with the characters and and the little subplots of Antidus being fearful and Ganatus flirting with Barbara and all. I, I like all that. I find it charming and and uh, you you know uh, and, and the ways that they use to tell the story and and, and let it let it let, let it sort of tell itself over quite a long period of time and, and yet the fact that they you know yeah yeah all, all that you know you know all that. Um, but. But I also get the need to draw younger people in because there's a lot of time between the 60s and kids now, much more than there was between the 60s and me when I was younger. And even I, you know, it took, took me a while to get used to, you know, the different pace of old stories and black and white seemed, you know, quite distant. Silent seemed like, I remember thinking, oh, I can't watch silent movies, you know, they're, they're too old. Well, they're now... Uh, you know, old Doctor Who is, is is the sort of equivalent of silent movies for this generation. So, so uh, absolutely. Um, but I, I, I do like uh, the black and white, and and I also like the fact that, and I, this this does sadden me about today. I think that I, I think in 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 our zeal to make this world a better place, and certainly I, you know, I hear it in my kids, and 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 you know, obviously I observe the young on the social medias and all of that. There is a tendency to scold the past and to be cross with the past and to think that everybody, that everything that happened in the old days was done by either idiots or bad people. And and we would we look back on the past with a certain sort of reverence that uh, you know that they they were the pathfinders to what we have today. Uh, and I'm sure they you know made mistakes along the way or whatever, but that they'd created you know many of the good things about the world that we had, rather than they were responsible for all the bad ones. Uh, and I thought that was that was a sort of that's a more humble way to be really to me that that you you know you appreciate the things that you've got were were built on foundations laid by others now of course that also means that the bad things you've got were were perhaps you know responsible for people you know outside of our were outside of our control so we should be cross with the people that were the cause of them but um 
I always think that's a bit like throwing stones, you know, sh- shaking your fist at the clouds or whatever. Um, and, 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 and I looked back at old stuff as though it was a sort of, you know, dusty, venerable tome. And I like that. And that's, that's, that's my equivalent of Dominic's nostalgia. For Dominic, it was something he sort of vaguely re- remembered and lived through. Uh, for me, it was something that I, I couldn't quite touch because it was just separate from me. But because of that, it, it had a, a sort of hallowed aspect to it. And I rather liked feeling like that, that there was something that I could never touch or be a part of, but could now see and at least sort of relive or or, or live, you know, uh, vicariously, if you, if you, if you like. Um, but I, I had a sort of insight into it without ever having been able to touch it uh, or, or, or walk through it. And that, and that felt like a privilege to have a, you know, a lens into history, to, to, to understand it and to appreciate it, not to sort of go, oh, yeah, we're, we're, all, we're all better than all the people in that, because uh, that's, that's not, to me, a way to be. I, I like nostalgia. I like, I like looking back to things that are... Because I find it quite humbling as well that, that, there's, that it's gone. The only thing that keeps the past alive, really, is, is us. Uh, and we can take the lessons from it and try to tr- try to put them into our own lives and be better ourselves. Uh, well, yeah, that's that's what we sh- that's what we should do with the past. But what we can also do it is is appreciate it on its its own terms and and sort of I th- I think it's quite humbling to to keep all those you know this is why I love the people from Doctor Who because we kind of keep them alive and I and I and I find it moving that uh, you know those moments in time that were as real to them as they were doing them as as this moment is to me now and I can see the colors that I can see and I can smell the smells I can see and you know when I'm talking to the people I'm talking to they're there with me and present we have that energy and all that was happening in those black and white pictures that we see now but the moment is gone the actual reality of that moment is gone but what that moment created and what those people created is still ever present and you know those people are either dead or now old William Russell was 99 the other week but there he is aged what 39 40 being brilliant and charming and lovable and always will be but he was there and doing it and I find it a real privilege that that the modern age has enabled us to watch those moments captured and I think it's even more so when it's something like a 60s television production because it was sort of put together as you were seeing it you know anything made now Yes, the scenes you see were live and present where they were shot, but actually they're they're probably uh, made up of various different takes, uh, lots of post production. Uh, sometimes people weren't there on the same. Well, a prime example is the the uh, ending to an adventure in space and time that we've just seen. It was beautiful. Uh, David Bradley as William Hartnell seeing Shuti Gatwa, uh, who I you know we still haven't properly seen as Doctor Who, and I thought that was lovely. But also, I know he wasn't. They weren't there in the same room. Do you know what I mean? That was that's because we can do it all by magic now. They had a different kind of magic in the sixties, and the magic is that we we are kind of there with them, doing it. And what they what we see is what they did, pretty much unaltered, because there there weren't any ways to alter it. And I find that rather magical as well. So so my nostalgia is different from Dominic's, but I think nostalgia is extremely powerful, and. It's a contrary thing because I'm nostalgic for my childhood, even though I didn't particularly enjoy it. I wasn't very happy in my in my childhood. And yet, you know, we've got a plastic jug here that I won't throw away because it was a plastic jug that we had in my home. And it reminds me of the home in the kitchen at my mum's house 
you know, in the in the 80s or whatever. But I wasn't particularly happy in that kitchen. But it's somehow a, a relic of the past that I suppose because I got through it, it makes me feel safe or, or because it connects me with the kid. And you, you, you think now, oh, God, when I was a kid, I, I didn't actually really have any worries. And uh, God, I was in and wasn't it nice to be so innocent and to be so full of wonder and all of those things that you, you lose as as adulthood sort of creeps into you and, you know, seeps into your bones and, you know, smooths out your edges and, you know, um, uh, you know flattens out your emotions a bit and uh and i and i and maybe it's that maybe it's that connection with with what one once was and i find that quite moving as well i'm desperately pretentious and i talk a lot of shit about what is essentially an old television program but this is what you saw this is what this is your fault you're the ones listening uh however many of you there are this is what you said we've i've got the man who uh rearranged the doctor who theme for the trial of a time lord season what a special guest giving us his in his personal and professional insight and you've got me wanging on about a plastic jug that that i can't throw away <laughs> oh god i'm uh, anyway right uh dominic's third thing number three the atmosphere uh, director waris hussein managed to create the most incredible spookiness on a budget of five guineas and sixpence or thereabouts it's just so dark foggy and oppressive the entire episode feels ominous and scary without there being any monsters or alien threat. It's simply the unease that we feel at the juxtaposition of two ordinary English teachers from 1963 and the two weird and mysterious travellers from who knows where and when. Um, it really is atmospheric. And I, I funny going into this, I was gonna, I was thinking of um, Warris's roving camera, Warris Hussein's roving, roving camera, that was going to be one of my stars as well. Because, and again, looking at it again without talking through it, it's that it's it, it's that inky blackness and the black and white. It is more black and white, and it is beautifully beautiful, and it really is atmospheric. All of that stuff, because it's at night. We don't often get Doctor Who. We don't get Doctor Who at night as often as we should, really, because night filming was really hard. It's it's not so hard in a studio, which this episode entirely is. But it, those night scenes, and there's not many of them, but I've, again, I love that shot just of Susan entering the junkyard. It's tiny, um, but because she's in the costume and because it's nighttime, because it's such a good set. Uh, and it's a moment that you don't really think about because there's so many other sort of hugely you know, iconic moments in it. And I use iconic in the proper sense of the word, not throw it about willy-nilly so it's as i mean in, in sentences and television shows these days it's as uh it's it's as uh as as a uh, uh, ubiquitous as salted caramel and pulled pork on menus you can date you can date you can date you'll be able to date anything from 2022 2023 for pulled pork uh, salted caramel the use of the word iconic and drone shots in documentaries anyway that i think it is truly atmospheric um and i love it when doctor who does drippy atmosphere and uh, uh, uh there, there aren't many uh installments of doctor who as atmospheric as that first one and all it is is some people you know looking around a junkyard it's uh or, or hanging you know hanging outside of one in a car yeah it's got a great atmosphere number four the gripping nature of the plot and script watching this again i felt myself hanging on every word totally engaged and enthralled at the end of the episode, who could possibly not want to watch the next episode to find out what happens? It's 
just such a shame that the rest of the story is more than a little dull in comparison. This episode, however, never lets us down. Edge of the seat stuff in a quiet, thoughtful way. Just ever so slightly menacing and never boring. Oh, I think every word of it is is perfect. And it's funny watching it again without talking through it. I, I made a mistake about the rock and roll years. The uh, did, Have I said this already? Oh, late. I'm so tired. Um, that, uh, the, you know, have you ever thought what it's like to be wonder is comes after Ian's Ridiculous? I think I have already said that. Oh, no, I'm being repetitive. But I've, if I've said it once, I'll say it again. The episode was repeated, so I'm only being appropriate. Um, but also what I noticed um, is that it's not just Susan and I are cut off from our own people without friends he also does the one day we shall get back yes one day which is wistful and longing and again suggests you know it helps with that that sense that they're that they're cut off and they're lonely travelers and that they're you know um you know that that they're in trouble and and of course the line that comes before it i tolerate this century but i don't enjoy it I mean, there's so much in that line as well. So it's not just the classics, you know, Wanderers in the Fourth Dimension and all of that. There are so many really, really good lines uh, that that are so... The economy of it, and, and that's all what um, Dominic is alluding to, the, the, the way that this episode unfolds, and where the mystery leads us, and how it's all filled in largely through dialogue and character is is a real lesson in top-notch writing and structure um and it's it's i mean it's perfect i don't i i don't think i'd change a line i don't think i'd change a line number five william hartnell's performance it might be a bit unfair to say that possibly the first doctor's greatest performance was in episode one of season one and that it all goes a bit downhill afterwards but there is no denying william hartnell is magnificent in his episode mesmerizing and weird a little frightening but tender and caring too when addressing his granddaughter it's really quite a nuanced performance we all know with hindsight that he's not a bad guy at all, but viewing this for the first time, nobody would know anything about the lead character. Hartnell keeps us guessing with a complex portrayal of a dark and alien character, delivering his lines with confidence and really nailing the role of a grumpy, crotchety old man from another time and place. All in all, for me, this is actually one of Doctor Who's greatest episodes ever, and I can't quite believe this was produced 60 years ago. What a classic. Ah, oh, well, thank you, Dominic. And he didn't uh, plug his uh, uh, music, so uh, I will do that. But, um, yeah, I mean, we've, we've, we've covered why I chose everybody and not uh, Hartnell on his, uh, on his own. Um, but Hartnell is, is really, really good. And again, watching it then, it's that, it's that sort of, it's that, that faint smile. I, I, and I used to be of the opinion, I still, yeah, it is one of his best performances, if not his best, but he gives some other really good performances in the run. Some, some, you know, some quite late on as well. I think he's extraordinary in Master Plan 12. He's not in it that much. Uh, and his final speech in The Massacre is actually one of those things that, you know, you read about and went, oh, but that's amazing. And then, you know, you'd see quite a few of those things and go, oh, it's actually not that amazing. Amazing. But the, the 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 massacre speech is is I think very well, uh, very very that good, and that's that's quite late, you know, that's quite late on, and when he is starting to str- struggle a bit. Um, but and I used to think, oh, it's a, it's a shame I don't quite like the hooting 
Hartnell doctor, you know, because I because I've been told he was irascible. I told the doctor was a crotchety grumpy guy, but the doctor doesn't work entirely as a crotchety grumpy person as the series goes on. You you know he wouldn't have been followed round by kids like the Pied Piper, as he said it. That beautiful scene in uh, in Adventure in Space and Time, which uh, has just been on as well, when he's in the park and the, you know and he thaws because the the guy that hated children suddenly finds out that being magical to them is is such a rewarding thing. Um, you know, if he'd if he'd continued to be so grumpy, and again, you know, th- these days, you know, we have this idea that, or or maybe it is, maybe things have changed, and that's fine as well. That you know, you you, you, you c- kids can't possibly identify with somebody who isn't like them or whatever. Well, you know, c- kids love wizards and magicians, and and uh, you know, again, it's that thing of old wisdom. If we allow it we showcase it we're quite ageist now and i wonder if in 20 years time we'll look back and go why weren't heroes allowed to be old why weren't we you know or uh, or, or fat um, but let's let's not get into that we all you know it's only when you come out of something and look back on it and go why did we do like that then and there are certain things being done now by you know uh, good people with the best intentions that will form a pattern that in 20 years time will make us look and go oh actually looking at that from a distance that that was that's a bit strange or that doesn't quite work or that needed readdressing or rebalancing and i'm not i'm not aiming that at anything particular or any one particular now but i'm just talking about the passage of time and why we must always be um wise about you know our own complacency because some of our things and some of the things that you know as i say the very best people people who think they're the very best people do will will be shown up to have their own inherent problems uh which is why I, you know uh i always give the past a little bit of a break but right but but yeah but but I, I, it was when season two came came out on on blu-ray and and i had cause to and and doing some of these happy times and places and had cause to watch Hartnell stories, which I, I, I'd say when I when I started getting them on bootleg and stuff, they were largely a little bit disappointing because, because of course, they weren't what I'd imagined in my head. And it took me a while, a few rewatches, you know, like seven or eight, <laughs> to 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 sort of accept them on their own terms. And in fact, some of them, some of those, I've only really done recently as I've you know learnt to learnt to be a bit less cross about things, shortcomings, and more accept them on their own terms. And, and stories that I'd previously sort of thought of, you know, overrated or, or needed, you know, p- pulling down a, a a notch or two because 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 I, I would I would also always up the underdog and 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 have things to say about the ones that everybody else likes because that's the kind of conceited and vain that I am. Um, like the time meddler watching at the BFI with a load of Doctor Who fans, where I'd always been like, "Oh, boring." The Saxons and the Vikings aren't very good. Peter Butterworth and the sets are uh, the only really good things about it. Although, and you just go, "No, it's utterly charming. It's brilliant. I love all of these people. I love the vibe and the atmosphere and the chemistry and 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 the production on its own terms and the jokes and all of that." And I fa- and I found sixties Doctor Who, especially Hartnell Doctor Who, much more charming than I'd ever found it uh, before, particularly that second season uh, where, you know, a lot of the stories I've been down on because they're not 
they'd not fitted in with my imagination of what they should be from having read the Target books or Doctor Who magazine or whatever. Uh, and, the, and the early years was it brilliant black and white photographs that make anything look like a sort of majestic movie, which, um, you know, it's that dark, those dark, grainy black and whites, you know, blown up beautifully and big and looking fantastic that, you know, that actually look a bit better than the you know slightly shaky the, the the mobile episodes because as soon as you start moving around things clatter and shake and crunch and whatever um but i've i i i i find now i find giggly um dotty grandad hartnell not a disappointing diminution of the strange enigma slightly slightly sort of threatening slightly malevolent i mean those eyes the way they they dart around with an almost calculating malevolent intelligence is wonderful and it's great for this first episode but actually i'm quite pleased that he became you know dotty uncle who if you like and it, and he fits that very very well and it's you know it's obviously having seen him in that that footage where he is himself you know in that local news footage that was tracked down by i think it was richard bignall um which i first saw on the set of an adventure in space and time because when i was talking to david bradley i said oh have you seen have you actually seen much of the old who and have you seen you know much of william hartnell and then we were talking about how they'd found this stuff and he said oh yeah i've got that have you not seen it and i said no i think it's it's coming out on a dvd soon but i haven't i haven't seen it and he said oh, i've got it on my and he gave me his tablet and let me watch it bless him so i i had he was holding the tablet and i was watching it on his tablet so i had David Bradley as William Hartnell over my shoulder as I watched William Hartnell and the only thing we've got of him visually being William Hartnell uh, and aren't I a lucky boy um, but but you know that William Hartnell I'm a legitimate character actor um, is is not dotty uncle who do you know what I mean he's much more like a sort of pugnacious boxery type than he is a you know a, a scatterbrained space wizard um, thanks Dominic so Dominic has uh uh, he's got uh, um, is um, he's got a, a mini album coming out called Survival: The Remixes, uh, and he's put the Indefinable Magic theme as a bonus track on it. Um, so I'm plugging that now. I love all of Dominic's music for Doctor Who. I think his survival music is fantastic. I think his Dragonfire music is fantastic. I think his trial music is is gorgeous. So. Uh, I, I think his scores are, are, are frequently uh, are the strongest in in the strongest things among the strongest things about his stories. And I, what have I done? I've done survival, haven't I? And I've done Dragonfire. And I think I nominated his scores as the best things in in both of those. And uh, I suspect I will in Mysterious Planet as well, um, because I think his music is is really really terrific. And uh, so I'm happy to plug that whether he's been on this or not um and also which he hasn't asked me to plug the gallifrey remixes which have been out a while but um i had cause to get them the other day not long before he emailed me uh, i just heard them on something thought oh i've not i've never bought those and they're terrific so uh before we go into new who because i have people from new who i've got some illustrious people from new who which i'm quite pleased about i mean obviously my childhood self is you know oh god i've got all these people from 
from Doctor in the olden days, and that's where my heart lies. But I, I would feel sad if I was if I was not remotely, you know, I, I, I see New Who as, as as equally sort of out of my reach because it's made by, you know, big movers and shakers and bloody blah, blah. And I, I, I can understand if, uh, you know, Katie Manning and and, uh, and Nicola Bryant are nice to me because I've I've met them loads and uh, you know we've been at the same things and in the same green rooms. But but people from New Who and modern television and oh they're a bit oh um there and 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 yet a lot of them have been very kind and contributed but before that uh this chap bridges the gap between uh those because he is an illust you know he is a, a an incredibly experienced and illustrious writer of modern television but has not written a modern doctor who but has written for the modern doctor who universe but um is pr- a prolific tv writer and also has done some groundbreaking big finish stuff not just doctor who he's also a delightful mind uh, funny chap a uh, great company and uh, is responsible for a connection that i have with this episode that i wonder if he will bring up in his choice of five things i suspect he might which will mean another another addition to a surprising uh, aspect of this that is f- f- well it's it's an aspect of this that is flourishing in the favorite stakes somewhat surprisingly but let's let's see let's see if one he says who he is and what he's done and Two, if one of the things he chooses is is the thing that I'm alluding to. So uh, let's hear from him. Hi, Toby. Joe Lidster here. And here are my top five things about episode one of Doctor Who and an unearthly child. Number one is William Russell. Uh, Jacqueline Hill is obviously amazing and we all love Barbara, but I think William Russell's performance can sometimes be overlooked it's just so good he takes a character who has the potential to be sexist or at least misogynistic mocking Barbara for her fears you know he's the square-jawed hero um, but he plays it so jokily he's really funny and charming um, Barbara's a little bit colder at the moment she doesn't know who John Smith and the common men are but he's so much fun and so curious and I want to spend time with him and I think that sets up the blueprint for what a Doctor Who companion should be, someone we want to spend time with. Ah, so there we are, isn't that? <laughs> so, well, one, he didn't say what he does. Um, and two, uh, he gave me the perfect point to discuss how warm and twinkly and brilliant William Russell is. But I did that after Dominic Glynn had chosen the theme tune. So that means I should learn to shut up sometimes. So imagine I said all that about Ian just now as a response to joe's point that would that would have been effective wouldn't it um joe i'm sure you know him he wrote the the breakthrough big finish the rapture that's just seemed like the coolest thing ever uh when i was uh uh, when i was a a kid listening to um to to big finish it seemed like you know it was it was was thoroughly thoroughly modern and uh, he's also wrote master which is one of the, the the very best uh big big finishes um but of course uh, he's he's done so much television the demon headmaster and uh wizards versus aliens as well as torchwood as well as the sarah jane adventures uh he's uh you know he's 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 very much steeped in doctor doctor who mythology but also steeped in the world of professional television writing and uh and is 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 very skilled but he's also he's also a hoot and good company uh and I concur with his choice of William Russell, but of course I cheated because I have him as part of the quartet. What is Joe's second thing? 
Uh, number two, I love the fact that we follow the teachers, that they're our identification characters. If it was being made now, we'd absolutely get the note, make Susan the main character, make her feisty. I think it helps confirm that it's not just a show uh, for children, but for the whole family. And it's just a bit cleverer. I think it's a, a really interesting choice because it's, imagine your teachers having lives or interests and jokes and then getting into adventures. That's really unearthly. Uh, very good. Uh, and that's interesting coming from somebody who writes a lot of modern television saying that your note, if you were to write this today, would actually ru- would actually ruin it. Which uh, and and I f- I find this a lot where where you know you I, I'll talk to somebody who's written something and go oh, I didn't quite like that and they go yeah well we didn't have it like that but then we were told from on high to do that because that's how we do things these days not because it, it will make the story better almost but but and it actually sometimes makes the storytelling a lot harder because somebody's gone no no you've got to do this instead you go but hang on that that doesn't just change this it unravels everything I've carefully put in place. Um, but, uh, you know, the the fact that we follow the teachers and, and Susan is the mystery and then that mystery leads to the Doctor is key to its success. And yes, also, we might find it a little quaint these days that, you know, our identification figures at the in the first 12 minutes of this children's drama adventure is is too rather sort of, you know, uh, you know, liberal Democrats. Uh, I know there was no such thing in 1963. Um, uh, Lib Dem uh, school teachers um who, who are you know uh, one one of whom is is a bit down with the kids and one of whom is a is a bit sort of matronly concerned but actually yeah they are so likable uh, and the fact that one is a science teacher and one is a history teacher and they both have their different perspectives on susan which show us the different elements of her unearthliness it's not just that she's sophisticated it's that she's unsophisticated as well uh, which which is clever and makes it multi-layered and yeah it's uh it, it's 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 a it's a superb choice to to tell it that way and the fact that they're both teachers and uh, is 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 essential to that uh what is joe's third thing um Shady Sal. So during the lockdown, I did a quiz round for the Quiz of Rassilon, which led to me giving nicknames to the kids in the background because um, it's the same bunch of extras in each scene. Uh, there's no chair Steve because he's always standing in the back of shots. And you then went hunting for them. And I'm very happy to have been involved in something like that. Uh, my own little contribution to Doctor Who. Oh, you've had more of a contribution to Doctor Who than I have, Joe. But I am. Yeah, we did this quiz uh, and Joe did a load of questions about an unearthly child and one of the questions was you know how many people do we see in the story uh, in the episode and of course you know it's the policeman and then the, the four main characters uh, and the, the shadow and then the school kids and there are seven of them and to illustrate the fact that there are seven of them and it's the same seven in every scene uh, he named them all and Shady Sal is the is the is the one who sort of whispers about Kenneth Williams and raises her eyebrow in a very sexy way. That's Carol Clark, aka Carol Friday, aka Caroline Villiers. She worked under a lot of different names. Uh, she's in a she's in the video for Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves by Sure, uh, uh, and and you know had had a recording deal, um, and uh, and and played at the West End. Uh, Kenneth Williams, I've told you a bit about uh, Richard Wilson, later Richard Alexander, uh, double L Wilson, not Victor Meldrew, Richard Wilson. 
uh, ended up being a pub landlord but kept his hand in with theatre is in to sir with love uh, heather lyons who's the first one uh, with the with the who's the pretty much the first one we see coming out of the corridor with those amazing eyes i've seen a picture of her today and she's still got those you know uh, sparkling eyes uh and she was interviewed a few years ago i i couldn't get a, an interview out of her but she's she's still around um and uh, no chair steve is actually Fred cedric schumann who is still about as well but he lives in zambia or south africa or somewhere and i i, I emailed back and forth with cedric and with his sons and uh, yeah he's no chair steve uh, <laughs> and that was pretty much one of the few things he did in this country before before hopping back and so he didn't really know anything about doctor who or its place in the pantheon or anything like that and he's lived a long and interesting life that has nothing to do with uh, theater or television or any of that stuff so but look there's more of that in my if you haven't heard it uh, my far too much information podcast which is uh, available for all to hear on itunes it's part of season four class of 63 revisited and um yeah it was i think clayton hickman had tweeted um uh, you know you should you should try and find them or something and i hadn't really taken it seriously and then and, and then a few years later this joe joe did this quiz and then i was thinking of something to do for the 58th anniversary and i thought well let's see if i can find them and i and at that point i found them all bar kenneth williams and uh, the lonely blonde who's uh, who you don't see that much but she is she's in the standing up at the back with no chair steve when everyone's laughing at susan um and then I found out about Kenneth Williams through the chance that I've told you about earlier. And then I finally found uh, The Lonely Blonde by a bit of uh, dogginess with a little help from Richard Bignall, who had a suggestion as to somebody who might be her sister. So I wrote to her sister and then she finally got in touch with me and she has a completely different name now. So that's it's no wonder I couldn't find her. But uh, we've exchanged back and forths. Uh, so, yeah, and I mean, a totally daft and irrelevant endeavour. But I do have a sense of achievement for having done that, even though it's completely pointless. I, the fact was I set, set myself a task and I completed it. And, you know, uh, that, that, you know, I don't always complete or succeed in all of the things I do. In fact, I have a, I have a great sense of a, a, a lack of succeeding in, in m most areas. But that one, I can say I pulled off. So thanks, Joe. And I'm glad that it tickles you because if it didn't tickle you, I mean, it was a, it really was a completely pointless endeavor. Um, number four, I love the opening, the fog, the policeman, the junkyard, humming police box. It's just really atmospheric. And I just think being a kid in 1963 and sitting down to watch that, it must have been amazing. And I, what I really love about the police box is that it's so subtle as well. It's just this mysterious hum. Um, not loads of weird computer noises so you can imagine sort of older kids getting closer to the telly to check can you can you hear that yeah there's definitely something um it's just brilliant ah that's it so the school children and the opening i think are currently streets ahead of uh of, of everything else uh really pleased i'm really pleased about the opening but i've I think i've said all there is to say about it uh, although I, the, the, it was the bell clanging that got me this time. Just that bell in the distance that just, again, just gives it a little bit of whoa, something. 
And number five, and possibly my favourite thing about it, is the absolute pace of the storytelling. Um, two minutes, literally two minutes into it, and Ian and Barbara are talking about how Susan worries them about how she lets her knowledge out bit by bit. Um, you know, the economy of the storytelling is brilliant. They're straight into it. Then Ian says, um, so Barbara says, Susan's grandfather doesn't like strangers at home. And Ian says, he's a doctor, isn't he? And again, you, you know, you're watching it knowing what the title of the show is. Um, you know, six minutes in, and Ian and Barbara are at the junkyard. Uh, it's just really, really well paced, and I think it should be shown to anyone making adult TV today. You know, to get on with it. Um, and can I award myself a bonus one? Number six, Ian and Barbara's exchange of "Not gone yet, obviously not," which is just brilliant. Hooray! Ah. And if you uh, want to know anything about what I'm up to, uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm Joseph underscore Lidster. Done. Ah, oh, thanks, Joe. I do like Joe. I don't like an underscore, though. That's <laughs> a terrible thing. I really don't like an underscore in an email address or a Twitter thing because underscores don't come easily to me and you can't always see them if they're written down, especially if the email address has been you know, underlined as they are when they're sometimes written down because that's how they format themselves. And then if somebody writes them down in pen, in handwriting, you don't know if it's an underscore or a dash. I'm not a fan of the underscore. I'll forgive you, though, Joe. Uh, I, I actually have a pathological hatred of the underscore. If somebody has an underscore in their email address, it makes me quite bothered. But uh, I will forgive Joe because I like him so very much. And um, and and he always responds to my messages and the things I ask him to do. And I don't know why, because he's... Um, and and, and he always seems happy to chat when we end up in a pub together or whatever. Because um, he's, you know, he's... He's quite an achiever, and uh, I'm, as I say, I love you with an iPhone. But um, he, you know, he never, he, I, I never feel like I'm, uh, I'm, I'm being, I'm, I'm being sort of put up with, which I some, I sometimes feel when, when you know, people who've done things uh, are talking to me. But he always makes me feel like he doesn't really mind. It's probably because he's usually smashed. Ha 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 ha! And uh, it probably, probably makes me more interesting than I actually am. But I'm genuinely fond of Joe and I'm really pleased he did that. And I knew he'd give us good insight. And he is responsible for that far too much information. And I'm glad he enjoys that association. Right. It's about time we moved on to New Who. I am not just a lover of old Who, even though that's the one I've delved into the minutiae of. And I'm sure it will be left to others to, you know, cover New Who in the sort of detail that... uh, that I and many many others, you know, and, and I'm proper researchers too. I'm not I'm not uh, um, I'm not singling myself out here, but I'm talking about where I put my energies tend to be, you know, into those old actors because partially because you know time is running out, but also partially because you know they're they're from the times that I was growing up in. So I think I've got a bit of an angle, and I I I remember spotting them in things when I was a kid. So that helps with my any sort of research or 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 touch points that I have um but that doesn't mean I don't like New Who that doesn't mean I don't you know try and spot the actors from it in other things and 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 try and find out trivia about it and all that but as I get older I find less stuff is retained and less stuff stays in my head and also I like coming to New Who episodes that I haven't seen unspoiled because because I'm so familiar with so many other aspects of Doctor Who it's nice for Doctor Who to be fresh and new so I you know I don't read you know all the all the pre- I used to I certainly used to when Doctor Who magazine was doing the previews of uh, 
of certainly the Eccleston and Tennant episodes. I, you know, I, and I was watching programmes in the week to get any clip that I possibly could in order to, you know, get those. I mean, I used to watch Totally Doctor Who. My friend John was chortling the other day because he didn't watch Totally Doctor Who because, as he said, it's for kids. Ah, yeah, it was for kids, but it would always have a clip of the episode coming up. Uh, in the week so 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 i would tape it i've got them all on vhs upstairs home taped totally doctor who because i knew i'd get a clip i'd get a sort of preview of saturday's episode whereas now i tend to sort of go actually i I can stay i might stay fresh actually i quite like i'll watch the next time trailer if it's part of the episode but i don't i don't have a hankering to, to to see exclusive clips on the one show or anything like that because i feel coming to i i quite like to to come to them fresh um and that's also it's a different kind of excitement for me. But, but I think I'm just saying this to underline the fact that much as I, you know, I'm all over classic Who and I, I adore it and nostalgic for it. I am no rejecter of New Who. I am. I've I'm, I've been as excited as I've ever been by developments in post 2005 Doctor Who. As scared, you know, as spooked and impressed as I've ever been. I don't think I've ever been quite as spooked. Or, or, or as thrilled at how spooky a Doctor Who scene was as 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 I was by the you know don't turn around Toby and it's not just because not because it's not 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 just because he's called Toby not at all that he's called Toby uh, in uh, in the Impossible Planet you know and and the thrill of uh, of of David Tennant's fake you know fake tease regeneration at the end of the Stolen Earth the bad wolf reveal in in turn left you know there's so many moments like that in in you that the, the daleks appearing at the end of army of ghosts that have got me even the macro in gridlock that have got me sort of punching the air and really thrilled and excited uh so so and and and, and i think what i love about new who is it, it sort of keeps me in touch with that kid who was you know who's now completely vanished but perhaps his dna or a little bit of his essence is in that plastic jug <laughs> so maybe it's a way of keeping me in touch with him as well so so new who is perhaps my plastic jug but it's rather more exciting so i just wanted so so i'm i'm thrilled that i was able to, i've been able to reach out to some people with an association with new who who are of course fans themselves and who have their own take on an earthly child one of whom uh, actually was going to do this and then said look I, i've thought about it i've got anything original I said, I don't care if it's original. I just want you. And I do want him. Uh, and he's the writer of some of my favourite bits of Modern Who. So with the warning that he doesn't think he's got anything original to say, but actually, I mean, lots of people trying to be original have, have missed out things that he's now going to say for the first time. Who knows? But let's see if he introduces himself. I hope so. Hi, I'm Paul Books, comics, uh, games, uh television, all sorts of things. And my favourite things about an an unearthly child are, um, I would say, the fact that with the very first thing in it being a Kenneth Williams impersonation, Doctor Who is tied into pop culture from moment one. (laughs) Well, two things notable about that. Um, uh, Excellent writer, but obviously slightly uh, fluffing his his intro there. Or I I don't know, it sounded like his, uh, his phone microphone was being removed from a sock but it is so if you didn't hear that it's paul cornell the writer of father's day and human nature family of blood which are some of my favorite uh, uh, installments of all doctor who uh, and he's also of course was you know he was the he was the fan writer of that everyone revered back in 
back in the day and of course he was instrumental in uh, in the new adventures uh, and has flourished outside of Doctor Who as well and also uh, scored the highest score last week in the whole of the cricket draft fantasy cricket uh, league I know that because I, I play a little game with him and uh, him and a few others and I actually won the World Cup league in our mini league that we have but Paul's individual score last week was the highest of anybody anybody in the whole competition not just anybody in our league uh, which is an extraordinary achievement um, but pales in significance to his uh, TV writing career um, so I, I is I, I interesting because I don't read Kenneth Williams aka, uh, AKA Richard Wilson to else as doing a Kenneth Williams impression. I think he's just acting and going, oh, look at that. Um, and it just sounds to us like Kenneth Williams and we've we've imposed Kenneth Williams upon him. Um, but maybe it is deliberate. Maybe he's deliberately doing... Um, doing Kenneth Williams. Um, I hadn't thought of that. I thought that was just how he comes across to us. But uh, that's an interesting take from Paul that actually... He's, he's aping that actor from the not very many at that point carry on films. Um, I still think I'm right, but I will take Paul's I will take Paul's version because uh, we can have an alternative universe where that is the case. I love the uh, efforts to make the thought patterns of the cave people different. I'm sure we're a long way from any true representation of what actual cave people would be like, but the idea that maybe these people are Neanderthals, who knows? Ah, now, um, I clearly didn't explain to Paul well enough that we were just doing the first episode, but that's okay, uh, because if an unearthly child taught us anything, is that sometimes mistakes being in things make them very interesting indeed. So, <laughs> this is something that uh, when Sidney Newman watches this uh, Happy Times and Places back, he'll say, lose the references to the Caves People's episodes. They're nuts. Um, but uh, I will take responsibility for that. And I, I agree with that. But you'll, you'll, you'll need to listen to Jim Sankster and I podcasting about the Tribe of Gum in previous instalments of Happy Times and Places. Let's see if any of the rest of Paul's things are about the first episode um, I mean, it doesn't matter, does it? He's still very interesting to hear from. I like the fact that Doctor Who is literally Promethean from moment one, that he, he gives them fire so that they can become a civilization. Um, OK, no, we're still, we're still in Cavemansville, uh, but that's OK. Um, the, it, he does indeed give them fire, um, but does that mean he is responsible ultimately for the fact that we can now create fire that will, as the old mother said, uh, kill us all in the end. Oh, so maybe the Doctor is the saviour of the human race, but also the person uh, who gives us our instruments of our own destruction. I love the fact that in the um, extended version, not the extended version, I love the fact that in the uh, pilot version, um, Susan does some ink on paper pressings that actually echo and look like the title sequence. That's deeply groovy, and I wish they'd kept it. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? They say in a Rorschach pattern, and this is the Rorschach pattern that is not in uh, the transmitted version of An Unearthly Child, but is in the pilot. It has been alluded to before in this commentary. Uh, I mentioned it. Uh, no, I think first it was mentioned... Um, I can't remember who mentioned it now. 
because uh, my brain is atrophied but it was mentioned in, in in terms of it 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 being the light it being the light of the TARDIS and I said no no I thought it was the it was the console and Paul saying no no it's it's the title sequence it's the signal howl round so that just goes to show that a Rorschach pattern that I've always assumed showed one thing shows something something completely different to the two other people who've mentioned it in this commentary uh, and of course perhaps therefore justifies Sidney Newman's edict to change it because it's really not clear what what she sees because he didn't get he didn't see anything he didn't see any of those three things because he didn't get what it was at all some of Sidney Newman's notes aren't great by the way some of the ones on the Aztecs I, I think are quite annoying um uh, but we'll we might get to that when we do the Aztecs um so you know his famous notes about nuts we need a girl to get into trouble well there's one bit with the Aztecs where he, at the end of episode one he says uh, oh you know John Ringham fluffs his line there and it's like well yeah we we know that mate that's 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 a typical exec pointing out the bleeding obvious you go yeah we know that mate but you know we can't stop and go back for a fluff so what do you want us to do just say what send you a note and say by the way he fuss we we know that you know that but we can't do anything about it so what's pointing it out is just it's just it's pointless and annoying um you think we didn't notice that mate uh, we know that's not that's not what we come to you for um but anyway but yeah he didn't he didn't get what the raw shark was at all he didn't see any of the three things that each of us has seen i still think i'm right but paul paul sees the title sequence that's interesting and that's 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 the third mention then of something that isn't even in this episode uh which might might the Rorschach picture might have got more mentions than William Hartnell see this is uh, this is why Doctor Who is such a treasure trove and I love just the immense relatable chemistry of Ian and Barbara what great leads those two were anyway that's me and uh, I can be found at paulcornell.com where you can see all of my doings and of course I'm the host co-host of uh, Hammer House of Podcast. Oh yeah, check out Hammer House of Podcast. Paul Paul is very good at everything that he does um and is a proper fan uh and uh, you know always gives really smart observations. Uh, but but for me the the real excitement here is going this this guy uh who wrote three magnificent episodes of New Who, three benchmark episodes of New Who. And of course, Human Nature is based on a New Adventures as well, which, uh, you know, because it, it, it was it was a, a new adventure that made such an impact too, uh, has, has come onto my podcast uh, to celebrate with me and you 60 years of Doctor Who. Isn't that joyous? Um, I, I hope Paul will write some more Doctor Who. I really do. So let's now go to more recent who i mean really we're coming really up to date actually we've got a couple more writers uh and i like writers writers are interesting aren't they um and it's not just because paul i met at an event at the museum of science and industry here it was where i also met rob shearman uh and i became very good friends with rob and i've you know, been, been to I've, been, I've hung out with paul as well um i haven't seen paul in a in a while though unfortunately uh, so it's very nice that he's done this but actually the next contributor i've never actually met we follow each other on twitter we've had cause to go a bit back and forth the episode this writer of doctor who is responsible for is is i think is is amongst my favorites of the era 
that it was written for. I think it's a really good episode. I really like it. I think it works in terms of its wit, in terms of the way that the science fiction and the events and the story is is weaved into the show's format. Uh, and I really, really enjoyed it. But I've never met this person. They have no reason to be on this podcast at all, apart from the fact that I asked them and they said yes. So let's see. Let's see if there's an introduction. But there will definitely be five things. I wonder what they'll be. Hi, I'm Joy Wilkinson, writer of The Witchfinders and Whatnot. And five things that I love about the very first episode, An Unearthly Child, include... Uh, number one, the visuals. I'm constantly impressed by what they managed to get in that frame and some of the fab focus pulling in the car. But the opening scene encapsulates it for me. The mystery of that gothic fog and the POV with the policeman tantalising, withholding, but then going through the door without him and getting that privileged glimpse of the police box. What's it doing there? It's a cracking start. I love doors, closed doors, sneaking through doors. We'll come back to doors later. Oh, I've never actually even spoken to Joy. That's the first time I've heard her voice. Um, and I'm thrilled that she's on. Thanks, Joy. Uh, that's, that's given me a lot of joy. And um, has chosen the beginning. And I love the way she said the Witchfinders and whatnot. It's such a good episode, though. It's, 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 it really is exactly how you should uh, use a historical setting in a Doctor Who story. And exactly how you should use your threat um, to, to, you know, to have a... a, a I, I think it's I think it's I think the alien menace is seeded so cleverly so artfully into the story and it's got a big chomping guest part that uh, is good enough to attract an actor like Alan Cumming so I think it's a it's a terrific episode all round the Witchfinders. and I might watch it after I've done this um you haven't seen it for a while um she has chosen the beginning but of course being a clever writer um has has expressed it in a, a novel in an interesting way but we have we have that beginning again, uh, which I think is proving to be the most popular thing of the episode, um, which is really, uh, which I like because it was one of the things that I chose. So it makes me feel like I'm not totally out of step. But I also wasn't sure, I didn't, didn't that wasn't on my list of things that I thought, well, I didn't have a list, but the little, the little sort of occasional uh, thought in the back of my head that I thought everybody would choose. I wasn't sure that they would choose that, but it's, it's proving to be very popular, which I'm happy about. Uh, number two, I love the genius combination of the history and the science teachers placing those subjects at the heart of the show. It's hard to imagine anything so academic happening in TV now, but it's perfect, especially as they're not there to be teachers, but to learn and have their minds blown. Kids would love that. Um, so do I. Now, that's the second person who said, this is a brilliant thing and we wouldn't be allowed to do that in television today. What does this tell us about television today? Uh, but then again, that, uh, listen, that's such a... That's a, such a knee-jerk thing to do, actually. I in in and I've and actually I've learnt to stop doing that most of the time. I'm being I'm being performative here. I all you know I always used to invoke old Doctor Who, uh, and and I and I would want to invoke it to, or or, or to big it up and to do so I would do it at the expense of modern things. I'd go, oh well, you can't tell stories through character these days, or you, you, you know you. you you know th things aren't rehearsed as much these days so they're, they're they're not as good actually there's a lot of modern television which is really really good there's a lot of modern television and it's not all american there's a lot of modern british television 
that's really really good the quality of acting because i you know i talk to actors and i always sort of you know we get nostalgic and go, oh but you had five days rehearsal at the acton hilton uh, and it meant that the performances were so much better i love the performances in old telly but there's some damn good performances in new telly and it's a, just a different way of doing it and the really good actors these days they do their homework and they come really really prepared and they do their work at home and you know are used to working a lot a lot quicker uh, and have to be pretty spontaneous with the little bits of magic that uh, perhaps might have taken a couple of days to to to, to work out in rehearsals or whatever um but you know i did note with interest yes saying you wouldn't be able to do that in modern television well I, you know that's worth that's worth noting but it doesn't mean but i don't i don't want to be that guy who goes yes which means that all modern things are bad and only old things are good it's a bit like the way i used to go you know Doctor Who's good, so Star Trek and Star Wars are rubbish because Doctor Who's better. No, Star Trek and Star Wars are great, but Doctor Who's great as well. And I used to always have to kind of big up Doctor Who at the expense of something else in order to make my thing more important. And 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 we do that as people as well. You sort of, and and I think that way madness lies. Something that you like, or even you. You know, I think about this today in terms of, you know, a couple of jobs that i haven't got maybe and sort of go oh which means that that casting director is an arsehole and you go actually they're not because they cast that and they cast that person in that and and, it, and in fact i know somebody who knows them who says they're really really nice it, it might just be that that they they didn't think i was right for that part and, and they might cast me in 10 years time in something else or they might not but that's they still don't have to be a have shortcomings in order not to have given me what i wanted do you know what i mean we we I, th I think we sometimes always try and buy our thing or our point of view at the expense of somebody else's. And and it could be that the two things are true, that, um, uh, uh, you know, so, so I can still be a good actor and not be cast by that casting director and not and that casting director not be a bad casting director it's sometimes it's taste sometimes it's chemistry sometimes it's they might you might not even be on their radar or whatever but it doesn't always have to be one good one bad you know me good person disagrees with me bad actually the person disagrees with me might be have perfectly valid reasons for disagreeing and still be a good person but we've just come from different perspectives so in the same way that there i took it wasn't bait because it wasn't intended to be dangled like that. But I, I took both of those mentions of going, yeah, we probably wouldn't be allowed to tell this story today. We go, yeah, because all yeah, telly is modern telly. It's made by blooming idiots. Well, it, it clearly isn't. There are different ways that we do things and they still produce, in many cases, some excellent telly. Yeah, and some right load of old tits. But uh, there's a lot of television in the 1960s that was made in that beautiful way where they script edit and they tell things and they have an, an intellectual thrust and, and, and five days rehearsal that are still a load of old tits. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, I was just self-medicating there going, don't, you know, don't, don't yield to that temptation to go um uh you know because i like a thing done a certain way doesn't mean a thing that's done a different way is is bad um but i do note with interest that the two as i say two writers have have, have highlighted the brilliant thing which is the storytelling through the teachers uh as something that you wouldn't be allowed to do today but then again writing and creation flourishes under limitations and perhaps if one of the limitations is to go well you can't tell it that way now means you have to be inventive and tell it in another way and that necessary invention could lead to something amazing 
So it's how you respond to the limitations imposed, which Doctor Who itself did different limitations back in the 60s. Number three, uh, my favourite line is probably Susan's. Uh, I was born in another time, another world. It's so huge. It says so much about society at the time and before and since. This touchstone for the generation gap becoming a chasm in the 60s. Uh, yet it builds on that and complicates it by having the Doctor as the oldest one there. So it's not tethered to that era either. It's of the now and yet timeless, which is a theme going forwards. Um, oh, I love that. Uh, speaking about, you know, planting that line that I've, I've always just sort of seen as, you know, uh, beautifully economically put mysteriousness of going, oh, no, this is this is, you know, emblematic of what was actually happening in the 60s, uh, but then turns it on its head because it's not just the young one who's who's disassociated. It's the old one, too. Although, actually, I'm drawn to the idea that both old and young are are, are, are sort of um in somehow detached from society and 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 both have to kick out against it in different ways i think the young you know try and change it, it the the old try and take it back to what it was whilst in the middle is the you know is the current status quo and uh I, I, you know i always i always think that that the very old should have a little bit more kinship with the the very young because they're both they're both i think sort of treated uh, disdainfully by those who actually, you know, run the country and and hold the power and 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 influence the the cultural output. Uh, and uh, I think if the old and the young actually ganged up together, they could probably cause some real bother. Uh, but I like that. That's that's I li I like the way that uh, Joy took that line and ran with it. Number four, got to say, the first time in the TARDIS. Obviously, we're so used to that moment now. Uh, and it always feels to have a layer of irony and self-awareness. So to imagine seeing it fresh back then gives you real shivers. And it's played so well with how long they take to adjust, still rejecting the idea, even as it's going on. Um, so it, it makes it very vivid to a viewer watching it now. Uh, yes. Uh, now, I thought everyone would choose this, you see. I thought everyone would choose, you know, going into the TARDIS and wow, because it is it is so well directed by Warris Hussain. The, the, it is so well designed by Peter Brahatsky, both the, 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 the dark, you know, uh, you know, perverse shapes, musty uh, atmospherics of the uh, of the multi-level as well. Let's not forget. Um, but... Um, and, and it's wooden and material and, uh, uh, you know, sort of disparate bric-a-brac of the of the junkyard. And then the gleaming, clean, white, sterile, uh, massive TARDIS, that that contrast, that that stark Doctor Who-ness of, uh, you know, ancient and modern, of, uh, of, 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 of old and futuristic, of, uh, you know, of. of musty and spooky and gleaming and clinical uh i yeah i thought i thought everyone would choose that but um they haven't but joy has and uh, rightfully so uh and number five i'm sure everyone's going to say the sound which is amazing uh but i actually love a sound that's not there uh when ian doesn't shut the car door back to the doors again uh and there's no off-screen sound effect for it either. It gives me a real pleasure and appreciation for all the plates those actors were spinning back then, having to be totally immersed in the moment, but also very technically on it, selling them getting out of the car, but not causing any issues um, with sound or the 
things shaking um, like those pesky TARDIS doors in the first pilot. It really captures how that episode is a time capsule uh, for us watching it now, as well as still being so fresh and exciting in many ways. Um, as an aside, I would just say if I could change one thing about it, uh, it would be calling it The Unearthly Child because I find An Unearthly Child quite hard to say, but uh, that's sacrilegious, I know, and probably get me cancelled. Anyway, uh, probably cut that then. <laughs> uh, that's it. Uh, happy 60th anniversary, everyone, and here's to eternity. Oh, Joy, nobody's cancelling you. Uh, but interesting that you th- you would, having only happened upon the uh, uh, <laughs> the the importance of the Anne and mused about that earlier on in this set of podcasts. We've now had that refuted by you uh, a couple of hours later. Isn't that interesting? Uh, <laughs> but I loved that last point as well because I thought, oh well, yeah, I've, I chose the sound. We all talk about the sound, but to, but to but to apply it to William Russell's technical acting when shutting the car door is genius in its insightfulness and speaks to something that I think we always overlook and it really annoys me when when people look back at old television and sort of talk about the performance style or the clunkiness of it or whatever is how technical as Joy points out the actors have to be is that they're not just giving a performance and hitting their marks that because they're doing it as live they have various considerations that they have to make to aid the technical uh, competence of the production that they are in which relies on them doing certain things in the moment which cannot be uh, dealt with in post-production so yes it's not just that William Russell is charming and heroic and also funny and uh, calming uh, and all of those things that his performance is it's that he also is an assured and experienced actor who is making sure that that door doesn't make too much noise, is making sure that um, there's... A, I, mean, I noticed a bit when I was watching it again this this time, just for, for pleasure, when um, Barbara is talking to the Doctor when the Doctor's just been looking at the vase uh, and the camera moves around and Ian has to step to one side to ensure that he's behind them and between them so that the the camera is picking up the correct tableau that Warris Hussain has in mind which is Ian slightly further back and in the middle but you still can see his face and, and, and the Doctor and Barbara almost in profile talking to each other because that is the picture that is needed because the director is not just about orchestrating the action it's about making sure that where his cameras end up the people are in a position that means you can see them properly or that the, the tableau that they are in is, is visually pleasing or says something represents something about their relationships and the dynamics and again all of that is being done weaving from one movement to the next and it's almost like a ballet except if it looked balletic it would look phony so it has to look like natural movement but it also has to look like an attractive televisual picture and again it can't be done by stop set up now stop set up now it has to fluidly move from the one to the other the actors have to be fluid and the cameras have to be a different kind of fluid and those two different bits of fluidity have to sort of mix together uh in order to create something you know a, a cohesive and visually pleasing whole uh, and 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 all of that has to happen with us without us noticing that they're doing it and and that happens so much in television of this period but particularly very well made television and 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 an unearthly child 
is very well-made television. But there's the first vote for changing its name to The Unearthly Child. I, I mean, Joy, I think that is witchcraft to the ducking stool with you. No, certainly not to the ducking stool with you because uh, I, I'm so, as I say, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky that there are people that I've spoken to uh, and who might, you know, feel slightly obliged because I, I was nice to them in a pub once or at a convention bar. Um, or, but, but to somebody I've never met who has no reason to think of me as anything other than a pest has uh, applied herself so generously and thoughtfully uh, and, you know, given kudos to this endeavour uh, by being a writer of, of, of modern to who and of an episode I really enjoyed. I, I, I thank you, Joy. I'm very, very grateful. I'm sure I listened to something only yesterday and the person involved said, no podcast should last more than 20 minutes. Oh, good Lord. Well, look, I mean, the content is... is I, I'm flabbergasted by not my contribution, but the illustrious nature of my guests and the way that they have gamely thrown themselves into this and I think provided lots of interesting talking points. I hope I managed to match them or at least throw some perspective on the things they'd said. I am extremely grateful to them all i think we've probably got another 20 minutes to go <laughs> in our final 20 minute episode <laughs> where i will have to fit in how many guests have i got left one two three four five six so yeah it's going to be another long one but then we can bring these unearthly celebrations to an end but i've i've very much been enjoying delving really deep into the minutiae and for once getting lots of different perspectives i hope you have too and i hope this has sort of fed your your anniversary lust, if you like. It's certainly been feeding mine and it feels very appropriate at this time. You know, um, living the hours before, bet between, uh, uh, you know, the anniversary, during the anniversary, between the anniversary and, you know, the, the brave new world of the Star Beast, which, uh, which coming just two days after the 60th anniversary seems so appropriate and and uh, and wonderful and exciting and it really does feel like uh, a, a rebirth and, uh, and 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 as though you know there's a there's a good future ahead of us uh, you know the word doctor who is on everybody's lips but i have just asked people to have one particular episode of doctor who on their lips and that is an unearthly child and i have Two more writers from New Who, but from different eras, eras of New Who as well. Uh, I've, I've tried to get as an eclectic a mix of people as possible. Uh, three actors from New Who. That's exciting, isn't it? And somebody else. I mean, they're all guests that I'm greatly looking forward to hearing. One I have heard because uh, uh, I, I've, I've, I've spoken to them over the phone and recorded them that way. That was how they wanted to do it. Um but everybody else, you know, to preserve the surprise, I I don't know what they're going to say, but they are really interesting people, and I and they're all fans, but who have contributed to Doctor Who in major ways, uh, and I am very very much looking forward to to hearing from them, and then rounding off with, and I think the only the only way I could, uh, I I really hope that you stick with this right through to the end for our final guest, because. Uh, it, it fills me with joy that I'm going to be able to present you with that. Um, so that is for the next episode. So I, I, I hope you can persevere 
with one more edition of Happy Times and Places materialising firmly and only within the first 25 minutes of Doctor Who. So join me next time. In the meantime, thanks to all my guests and to you for listening. And uh, (laughs) uh, let's... uh, I'm going to try and exit this one without making a sound. Well, thank you ever so much for listening to Happy Times and Places, which is presented by me, Toby Haydock. I'm extremely grateful to the special guest birthday greeters, Sophie Aldred and Lisa Bowman, Ace and Benny, of course. And I'm grateful to the guests who have given me their five favourite things about an unearthly child. They were Simon Gerrier, who can be found on Twitter at Zero Tralala, Dominic Glynn, who is at Dominic Glynn One, Joseph Lidster, who is at Joseph underscore Lidster, Paul Cornell, who is at Hammer House of Podcast, and Joy Wilkinson, who is at Joy of SE19. Thanks to all of them and to the patrons who make these podcasts possible. The music for Happy Times and Places is by Dave Gates and the artwork by Dylan Patterson. And if you enjoy Happy Times and Places, there are other iterations of Toby Haydock's time travels. To have them all under the same feed, they're under this umbrella, Toby Haydock's time travels, but they're broken up into seasons. And uh, season two is Too Much Information, which is a blow-by-blow account of every episode of Doctor Who in chronological order, giving dates and biographies and observations. They go into minute detail, take a while to do. And season three is Indefinable Magic, which are sort of whimsical extended monologues about a particular rabbit hole that I've decided to descend. And uh, the sort of underrepresented fourth season is far too much information, which uh, is actually a patron exclusive, but I was allowed to let one out, which is the one about the class of 63, the seven schoolchildren extras in the very first episode that this podcast is all about. Have you noticed? So do check those out as, as they are alternative seasons uh, where, wherever they are held. Um, and I mentioned patrons there a couple of times. Uh, it's the patrons who make these podcasts possible and ensure they're ad-free. Uh, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydock, where for as little as £3 a month, you get advanced releases, bonus material, more of those far too much information, monthly AMAs, pictures of my dog. Oh, it's an embarrassment of riches. And everything is available at that lowest tier, although there are higher tiers as well. And you get 10% off whichever tier you're on if you sign up for a year. Now, you may not want to be uh, <laughs> attached to me for a whole year, uh, but you still may like to support these endeavours, in which case you can go to ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydock and donate as much or as little as you like whenever you like, so long as you pretend it's a cup of coffee. And I know that times are hard financially, and I am just, I really am truly grateful that of all the stuff out there in cyberspace and all the Doctor Who content out there, you choose to listen to these. And if you enjoy them, I'd be really grateful if you could do something that costs you nothing but a little bit of your time, and that is to give these five stars and a few lines of review wherever you get your podcasts. Perhaps say nice things about them on social media as well, but five stars and a few lines of review really help to uh, enable them to stick their head above the parapet and be seen by other people who hopefully will want to shoot them in their head but will want to make friends with them or at least listen to what they have to say without without any form of marksmanship 
at all. Um, so, uh, yeah, do that. Do that if, if you enjoy tortuous and ill-conceived metaphors that sometimes end up in the wrong places. You, you, can, you can fund them or not. But yes, you can certainly score and rate them. That would be really very much appreciated. And you can follow me on Twitter at Toby Haydoke, these podcasts at Haydoke Podcasts, and uh, I'm on Instagram at toby.haydoke, and I have a Facebook page, and I have a website, www.tobyhaydoke.com. Thanks very much for listening. That really wasn't 20 minutes, was it?